Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to another uh, special SACPA session. Um, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people in the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationships to the land. SACPA is committed to assisting reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the, the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Um, today, we're very honored to have with us Terry Lynn Fox, Dr. Terry Lynn Fox, and Elder Keith Chief Moon. Terry Lynn Fox is a member of the Kainai Nation, which is part of the Blackfoot Confederation. Her academic credentials include a BA of Psychology and an MA in Sociology and a PhD in Education. She is the director of the Kainai Wellness Center, which is one branch of the Blood Tribe Department of Health, located on the Kainai Nation. Elder Keith Chief Moon is a survivor of the Indian residential schools on the Blood Reserve. He was subjected to discrimination and bigotry, yet he obtained a high school diploma from Cardston, a BA and a B.Ed. in Native American Studies and an MA in Education. I want to welcome you both very much uh, for, and, and thank you for your time uh, today and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Mm. So, I can't see. so we're just going to get started um, if all the if the viewers can view the presentation. Um, thank you for um, inviting us to share. Um, our knowledge and experience relating to Indian residential schools, uh, specifically what has occurred in the last month or so regarding the um, children's remains found at one of um, Canada's largest Indian residential schools, Kamloops Indian Band. And I also want to um, discuss um, and bring forward today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, a, a day where we celebrate, we honor, we we are um, share our pride and and our love and respect to all across Canada and across Turtle Island. So the the topic today that was um, shared before us was the deadly effects of residential schools in Canada. How is it remediable? You know, and just think about that as we move forward in the presentation. How can it be remediable? Or, or maybe specifically, um, can reconciliation be achieved? By who and in what way? So moving forward, uh, one of the quotes from the, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls National Inquiry uh, that was um, publicized uh, two years ago um, this month. It says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, right? So if, you're, if, if you're, your gut and your psyche isn't riled up by the, the underpinnings and, and continuous um, unfolding of, of the uh, traumas and injustices, then there's there's something not quite right, right? So you sh you should be quite, you know, frankly speaking, you should be outraged as as many indigenous people are. So I want to kind of give an overview of the Indian residential schools, and I will I will say that uh, my PhD dissertation is on Indian residential schools. So I, I think you chose a pretty good team here to talk about that. Um, so the IRS compensation um, began in the 1990s and kind of the undertones of discussing 
what was happening in Indian residential schools, Phil Fontaine, the former um, Assembly of First Nations National Chief, um, brought it forward he, when he openly um, shared that he, he was um, experienced sexual abuse in an Indian residential school he attended. On November 20, 23rd in 2005, an announcement of a $2 billion compensation package was announced and hundreds of thousands of applications have been filed since then. On June 11th, 2008, the federal government broadcasted its apology to survivors of the Indian residential schools. It was a wrong that should never have happened. And then on July, in July 2008, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission was announced and launched. And in 2016, sorry, 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action, the 94 recommendations were, were shared. So that's, um, you know, five, six years ago. Something to think about as we move forward. I want to speak specifically about the, the research I had conducted. And in, in the poster, the handout that um, um, the organizers had shared with um, viewers, there was, you know, over 130 residential schools, you know, across, you know, maybe 150 years. Um, there was 26 in Alberta, six in Southern Alberta. And, and with this research, um, I had uh, interviewed and had conversations with 16 survivors. And so some of this data is straight from um, the survivors' stories, from the research I had conducted, as well as um, the research and, and websites that have been shared with um, across Canada and, and across the world. Um, the residential schools where they were located um, from start to finish. So there were 16 survivors um, from the different tribes within Blackfoot Confederacy. Um, and um, some, of, some of what I'm going to share is, is part of what they had shared with me. So if you, you look at the uh, directory of residential schools in Canada, it shows the map. And, it, and the black dots have all the, are the residential schools in Canada. Um, the Prairie Provinces, as well as BC, um, some are in the Northern Territories. Um, but, you know, the population at, at that time it wasn't a huge population. However, in some areas, they were quite condensed. And specifically in southern Alberta, there was two residential schools, um, you know, on the Blood Tribe. There was two in Siksika. There was also two in Bikani. So um, just think about that. What, what was the reasoning why there had to be two? Um, both were... Um, either the Roman Catholic or the um, Anglican Protestant um, church run. So, so think about that. Again, that the first quote I shared, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. So going on to the next slide where it shows the Alberta residential schools, um, many located in the southern area. But if you look at, um, you know, going across... Alberta, um, again, the population wasn't wasn't as large as it is now, and and the question is why were there so many you know built on reserves? You know what was the under you know thought patterns of the time? What was happening with government, with the economy? What was happening with the treaties and the Indian Act? All these factors play into um, building residential schools and again, um, you know, assimilation um, was the major, you know, forerunner for why residential schools were built as well as some of the other um, policies that we'll discuss later on in the presentation. 
So the next slide shows um, the residential schools that um, this specific um, population I interviewed where they attended. So Crowfoot Indian Residential School in Clooney, um, it closed in 1968. It was opened in 1909. Immaculate Conception Indian Residential School, so that's St. Mary's on the Blood Tribe. So it opened in 1911 and it closed in 1975. It, it doesn't mean it wasn't in operation at housing students that went to day schools. Because I actually remember when I was in grade four and five, one of my best friends was had to stay at the residential school. Um, her parents had um, unfortunately um, started being, they were dependent on alcohol and so therefore it was safest for her to be at the residential um, site. Um, but um, it was still in operation up until the mid 80s. Old Sun Indian Residential School in, in, um, by Gleeson, that closed in 1971. The Pagan Indian Residential School, that closed in 1965. St. Cyprian Indian Residential School, that closed in 1962. And St. Paul's Indian Residential School, that closed in 1972. So if you think in terms of one or one, two or three generations, um, Keith being a survivor, myself being um, one generation away from residential school, both my parents attended a residential school. I attended Indian Day School here on, on the Blood Tribe. So it's not, it's not um, that I, I, did, I don't know the effects. It was that... Um, it wasn't talked about because it was such a, the, the spiritual phenomenon of the, the traumas of the experiences of the changes, the rapid changes, language and separation and disconnect. Um, they were felt, um, they're felt through each generation in a different way. And until we begin to acknowledge and admit and heal, and move forward, then then those changes can begin to be seen um, on a on a broader perspective. But all Canadians are responsible to be part of that change in a good way. So, just speaking about the um, the individuals, I I had a conversation with uh, for my dissertation. Um, you know. One of the books that, some of the books that I, I utilized, uh, one was by uh, Ward Churchill, and uh, the title was Kill the Indian, Save the Man. Um, if, if you are, you know, want to learn more, have this sense of understanding and, and want to have a conversation, a really good place to start is reading his history books and reading history books from Indigenous authors and and cross-checking your facts, you know, the historical timelines of non-Indigenous authors and Indigenous authors, where do they get their, their stories, where do they get their facts from, is it oral tradition or is it government documents, so, so then we kind of see the discrepancy and the, the difference um, in historical um, textbooks as well as social studies for children, as well as government documents and government um, undertones um, when they're sharing with Canadian population. And I just want to openly share um, some of what the residential school survivors had shared with me when I asked them about you know, the compensation. Did you receive the compensation? And, and what, what did that do for you? How was it for you? Um, some of the quotes are verbatim, so one said, it wasn't enough, but it's not about the money. Another one said, I'm only worth, you know, $13.69 for each day I attended a residential school. 
Another one said, money can't replace what was taken. The language was taken, ceremony was taken, and dignity was taken. Another survivor said, when you give me back my language and spirit, then we'll call it even. Another survivor stated, this is another form of degradation. How could that ugliness ever compensate me? And, and this last quote, I, I remember the survivor so vividly. He just, he just shared so openly with me when I sat with him in his living room. Um, you know, and I didn't even ask uh, if they had, you know, um, been abused at all, but some of them were quite um, trusting. And I appreciate that as a Indigenous researcher, but also as a member. He said, I felt like a whore. I was raped and the government paid me. So if you, if you can kind of imagine, these are adults now, they're elders, they're in their 60s and 70s and 80s. But, but those experiences from, in a residential school that, that they, were, they were sharing. And, and I shared with them that when you tell me whatever it is you're going to share with me, just know that you're part of the change, you're part of the healing and the awareness. When this dissertation gets you know, out and into the public, um, we are part of that change. And so I, I want to honor them and thank them for, for being so open and trusting with their stories with me. At the time, um, the Truth and Reconciliation had just been announced. It wasn't really um, in, the, in the real crux of gaining the data and the information and the stories. And I had asked them, you know, one of the questions, <clears throat> um, the Canadian government formed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as part of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement to understand how people were affected by the residential school experience. The TRC had a budget of 60 million and was established on June 1st, 2008. At that time, not too much was happening. So they said, I don't know much. I would like to attend a gathering. It's just going to open old wounds. And can you share more information with me? At the time, and this was in 2012 when I did my field work. Um, and I'm gonna, I've shared a link at the end of the, this presentation where you could actually um, follow the link, download my dissertation, and you can read further. There is uh, much about uh, you know, 60 Gates to be history about the reconciliation, about healing, about understanding an Indigenous <coughs> context of, of who we are and how we once were. And hopefully seven generations from now, we will get back to that point. So the next slide uh, I, I talk about, um, you know, the apology, June 11th, 2008. Is it a way forward? On June 11, 2008, a monumental occurrence in Canadian history unfolded. An official, publicly broadcasted, all-encompassing federal government apology was heard, viewed and recorded to all those survivors of Indian residential schools and their families. IRS was one of the main policies that was enforced to alter this policy of assimilation, to achieve this policy of assimilation and to civilize the Indian, modification and transformation of young Indian children to learn the European way of life was the way to get rid of the Indian problem. And I'm sure many people have heard that quote in different books and in different uh, recordings, get rid of the Indian, problem. I don't think we'll ever be rid of and why why would anyone want to, right? Um, it is uh, maybe some of you might have a question relating to that. 
So this Indian residential school was attacked, was a major stepping stone to create havoc among the cultures of Indian people across this nation. The end result of this policy was to educate the Indian toward living a European way of life, farming, education, religion, governance, and even identity. So all of these elements of, of who a people are, their language, their ceremonies, their, their everyday practices, their connection, their, their ceremonies, um, how they interact with, you know, plants and the animals and the air and the water. This all identifies who they are. It all creates a foundation of who they are. And this is a global perspective. All, everyone who is viewing, all those that read, you all have a homeland. You all have a language. You all have those connections and cultural practices. You are indig Indigenous somewhere. So when we want to separate each other, we're actually doing an injustice to ourselves when we create that separation and we think that way. But it is not the way. So we must decolonize and we must transform our thought patterns so that it's all inclusive and it's fair and respectful to all. So the next slide, when we, when we think about an apology, what do, you, what do you say? What do you do? How do you apologize to someone? So these are quotes from the survivors again that I had conversations with, direct quotes. Uh, some of them said, I didn't care. I don't feel it was sincere. The prime minister had to read it from a piece of paper the, the apology was too late. Um, it was not good enough. The scars will never heal. I couldn't sleep with the lights off until I was 40. I was lonely for my parents. The Prime Minister can take his apology and, um, you know, XYZ. <laughs> So, so these are direct quotes from survivors. And, and again, just think in the context of they were children. Now they're in their, you know, 60s and 70s and they're sharing their stories. How very real it was for me to hear them talk about that, that time in their life. It, it, you can never forget it, but we need to heal from it. And that, that will, that's actually reconciliation with ourselves when we can forgive because these were children they inherited the guilt and shame and the ugliness of perpetrators and those that had done them wrong and that's part of that cycle of reconciliation and healing we all need to be a part of that the next couple of slides are just some photos i i wanted to share um think about uh, pre-presidential school, pre-confederation, um, Indigenous people lived on the land, either in teepees or longhouses, um, you know, up north. They, they had everything they needed from their surroundings, from the environment, how connected they were with the plants and the animals. For Blackfoot people, the buffalo was, was such a significant source of source of life for everything that was needed they were humble and honest and connected but if you look at the next slide pictures of the residential schools how how robotic how soulless how sad there there's no joy or life in the children's um faces and how they stand. They must stand all the same. They have to pray kneeling down all the same. And look at the Indian residential schools. What do they look like? And and, and I teach sociology. I, I teach a, a chapter in, you know, criminal justice. These look like um, prisons, right? They were they were prisons for children, if, if I will say that. Um, and, and sadly, many didn't go home. Many parents didn't know 
that they had died at the residential school. Many continue to be incarcerated because that's what they know. That's what they were taught. And so again, we have to open up our mindset. What are we willing to, to let go of? How are we willing to help our fellow, fellow Canadians? The next slide shows uh, St. Mary's Indian Residential School, and it was built in 1911 under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and the missionary oblates of Mary Immaculate. The school was used um, in the IRS system up until 1975, and in 1984 it closed, and it burned down in August 2015. There was mixed feelings of when it burned down. Some said that was the only home I knew, so they were grieving. Some said, um, I wish I could have burned it down. Some said um, it was a healing and reconciliation that the building was no longer standing. So, so mixed feelings when that had occurred. Our way forward, do we have a way forward? I, I think we do, but we all play a part in it. The process of reconciliation is, is, is um, something I talk about in my dissertation. Systemic reconciliation, a term I coined within my PhD dissertation, is a process of recovering, overcoming, harmonizing, and surviving. It captures the amalgamated effort to describe actions and related documents along a timeline from before the Canadian government's apology to the truth and reconciliation calls to action and numerous documents, past, present, and future. Systemic reconciliation is the practice of reconciling. It's the doing part, it's the action part. The next slide shows a, a timeline of, of, I'm not too sure how many people have a, you know, historical or history background. If you want to read about, you know, Canadian um, history, but it's a timeline that provides um, the changes in the government. So province, Alberta was a province in 1905, but there was already residential schools um, built. There was an amendment to the Indian Act in 1951. The Indian Act was um, formed in 1876. Um, Indians were allowed to vote in 1960. There was a white paper in 1969 and the red paper in 1970. Just going to jump forward. <clears throat> Truth and Reconciliation, 94 calls to action in 2015. MMIWG, 213 calls for justice in 2019. And the remains of Indigenous children found at Kamloops Indian Residential School, 215 and ongoing in 2021. So as you can see, the Indian policy has not been fair to Indigenous people. Want to read out the... TRC calls to action number 18. We call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to acknowledge that the current state of Aboriginal health in Canada is a direct result of <clears throat> previous Canadian government policies, including residential schools, and to recognize and implement the health care rights of Aboriginal people as identified in international law constitutional law and under the treaties. Now I don't know how many of you know that, but it's here in, entrenched. So now we must reconcile and and uh, live up to the promises. Our way forward, um, just a couple of photos on one of the one of the slides. There's a map there. Um, Prior to 1600, the area in red is actually Blackfoot Confederacy. So it, it's now really narrowed down to Southern Alberta, part, a part of uh, Montana, the U.S. So as you can see over the, you know, millennial, um, 
Indian policy has not been fair to Indigenous people in Canada, and especially Blackfoot Confederacy. I would just want to quickly share this last this last quote um, I use in, in many presentations. Um, an elder was asked, um, you know, what's common law and, and, and how do we understand traditional native common law? He said, the first is respect, which meant respect for all things, for all people, for the creator and for yourself. The next two were good and bad. If you learn respect, you would then know what was bad and what was good. The last two words were good life. For if you understood the law and followed it, a good life would be the result. So I want to end there with a couple of photos of uh, Blackfoot Confederacy um, landmarks. One is Nanastico Chief Mountain, Misamabeta Beatson, may you have a long life, Gamadan, may you overcome. And the last photo is of our annual Akogatsin uh, held in August of every year where we come together still, you know, and these are traditional practices. Our ceremonies live on in our daily practices and rituals in our hearts and minds through the chants, words, songs, and dances of our ancestors and the ancient ones. And the last slide, I've inserted um, a link where you can find uh, further reading relating to the IRS and Blackfoot Confederacy people. And I want to thank you for walking with us towards systemic reconciliation and collective healing. On behalf of Keith and myself, we thank you for joining in and listening. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your presentation. I'm going to jump right into the question and answers um, a portion of our session today. And our first session comes from, our first question comes from Trevor Page. The intent of an abuse practiced at residential schools is clear and acknowledged. Official apologies has been made. Do you think healing just a matter, healing do you think healing is just a matter of time, a generational issue? Or what else would you like to see done now? Well, as I said, um, I discussed this in my, in my dissertation in the first chapter where I talk about systemic reconciliation. And I think um, we, have to, we have to kind of wipe out the English vocabulary when we want to move forward. We have to come back to indigenous languages and use our language. And we will tell you, when we heal, we will tell you from our perspective, not from Canadian government or non-indigenous people. We will tell you when I don't have to um, ask for more money because so many people are dependent on alcohol or opioids or other drugs, when there's no homeless indigenous people, when there's fair and just um, in our education, in our, in our recreation, in our social um, services, then, then we can really get there. But until you understand it from our context, that's where the disconnect is. Many people see it from their context, from what they know. Sociology says, be reflective. Stop thinking about yourself. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. That's where we can create a good understanding, a very solid and respectful understanding. I hope I've answered that question. I don't know if Keith has anything further. I, I just want to add on to it that the, in, in with, the, with the reconciliation that we're, we're always putting out forward and we're always, but there seems to be in fear to, for society, they have to respond in a genuine, not in a, just a token way of to, to acknowledge it. Because you, as you look at the historical data you, that has been referenced, we were only allowed to go in 1960. That's 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 just a short while ago. 
And just, just with somebody with the MMIWG, I had a direct document that, as this is a lawyer, and he said, the justice system hates indigenous women. Look at what's happening to it. So that's, I, it's, it was, uh, it, it's, uh, it's an article that was written by, and acknowledged by the Clean Bar Society. So there has to be a genuine interest from society, and we have to work together. That's what we're trying to, and we're so willing to share what we have. Go back to the story, you know, the land that you're on, it's all blood that comes that's who we are, and we're still here. And the other thing, just in addition to residential school, we never lost our spirit. We're still here. And okay, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Many thanks for shedding light on the horrific story that for some reason wasn't well known among most Canadians for all those years. Who were the main people behind getting the IRS abolished? Were the main people? Yes, who were the main people behind getting the IRS abolished? Who was the the movers and shakers to to move the IRS uh, abolishment? Well, it, you must remember that in 1991, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People developed this commission, and the government spent two to three hundred million dollars to get answers as to how are we what's out there that's affecting the Aboriginal. So, as as a, I guess it's in a collective way, they went from reservation to reservation across Canada. And the residential school kept coming up. Got to the point where John Malloy, I think you believe is that's his name, he referenced this as a national crime. And he's got there's a book to that effect. So that's who I guess in the, in, in in a roundabout way when that Royal Commission was established, and then it's been uh all close to twenty five years now that uh, when it was released, and where people are still don't know about it. So so society has to acknowledge, and it kind of overlaps into our current provincial government, the, what the, the curriculum. He's saying that we don't need to have to ref, reference that. That's, that those, are, those are those hard data that was that was that were recorded for this for this uh, you know for this commission for them to to absorb and see what how are we supposed to get things improve the lives of average indigenous people. So that so the RCAP was was uh, was a start, and then that I guess you could say that would be one of the mechanisms that was out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of recommendations that came out of the TRC and out of the um, mm-hmm. also the missing and murdered women reports. It 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 seems that. These recommendations, where are we in terms of implementing these recommendations? Have any of them been implemented? Are we moving along or was this just <coughs> a lot of <coughs> hype and no action, right? To me, the truth and reconciliation should be about action. And where where are we on action? So I, I, think, um, I think if you go to any reserve, any First Nations reserve, you will see the action. We are actually taking the the rein and moving forward with the reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say, I'm, I'm, I've seen it, that Canadians, the government, they're going to learn from us how to reconcile Mm. because that's part of who we are as indigenous people many people know that that part of who they are that that natural good feeling part to want to reconcile to want to feel good to want to you know live live in balance and to share and to be generous and to be kind 
So we're actually taking the lead. Mm. Now, if, you know, institutions and governments and the economy and, um, you know, um, other people in general want to assist, assist. But I think uh, when, when, when we don't need to ask for any more money to help heal, I think that, that you will see reconciliation happen. But until that happens, you won't really see it in off-reserve. You're going to see it in the communities. You're going to hear it from Indigenous people themselves. They have to reconcile with that, with that guilt and shame and, and the violence and, and the homelessness and the hopelessness. They're going to awaken and they're going to come out of, come out of the trauma and they're going to heal. So I think that's that's where we we will see the the doing part of the reconciliation. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Question for Keith: Can you please describe your experience attending the IRS? Well, it's been uh, uh, my experience was right from get the get go. It was very traumatic. From uh, just I'll I'll quickly. Because my, my, my parents was, uh, both of them were members of the church that were here. So I'm from the residential, from the St. Mary's, uh, my mother was labeled as a Catholic, and my dad was labeled as an Anglican. So we were brought to St. Mary's, and right after that we had, we were, we were subjected to a lot of abuse because of, because of my dad being an Anglican. Then we got transferred into the, uh, say Anglican, we got chastised, we got abused big time because my mother was Catholic. So all along we got from all sides, got to the point there where my dad said, no, enough is enough. We, we got into, uh, so it was very traumatic. And then we got, we got, we were forced, we were, because my dad was charged for keeping us at home. We ended up, it was just been trauma right from day one. But the bottom line of all this, my dad said, and to, to encourage us, we, we have to, it, it's, I don't know how we. It was very traumatic, and uh, it was it was it was really hard to try. But we we told us we have to we survived, and that with, without the support of my parents, even though under under these conditions, it was really 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 hard to. You know, it caused me to become an alcoholic, because because I just didn't want to experience. It was just very traumatic, but I managed to complete and survive, and I got. Subject to Carson, we were looked down upon, we were, we were told we're good for nothing, we're savages, wagon birds, you name it. So it's been trauma, and then finally, I, I managed to complete, because uh, I, I was, there were days when I was young, when I was going to run away from that school. Mm. But my dad said, no, 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 you have to, he got, come on, tell me, he got, come on. And it was frustrating, but I, it was very traumatic, right from there, even now, when I applied to the University of Lethbridge, when I showed up at uh, that, when I first went there, I was confronted and said, what are you doing here? I said, I'd like to find out about going to the University of Lethbridge. And he announced right about this to the security guard, confronted me and he was ready to call the police, get arrested for whatever. And then they phoned uh, the, the secretary in Carson and yeah, the, uh, the secretary verified that I was actually a graduate from Carson. So it's been tra traumatic, and I was one of the first ones that, was, that attended the U of L. And uh, it was, it's been traumatic, and then, George, it's been, it's been a challenge, and then I think that caused me to come again. I got, I got, I got, uh, I was affected by the, uh, the, the, the alcohol and drugs, and, right? But then, if it hadn't been for the spiritual guidance of one of my uh, elderly grandmothers, she can, she's already passed on, but she confronted me and said, Ziki, stop us. And from that day on, I, I heeded her. So it's been tra traumatic. It was not easy. It was, and it still is. We're still trying to, even in the fact that uh, when I did get my high school diploma, I went from door to store to store, thought I could would hire me. He said, no, we don't hire Indians. Carving carts, and that's I just tried next door. So just doing that, that's your last time. Very traumatic. Thank you for listening. And 
Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Ian Hurdle, the next question is from Ian Hurdle. 55 years ago, when I was working in the Northwest Territories, the average indigenous A education was grade five. Dr. Tailfeathers just noted an eighth Kainai accepted to medical school. Will education help the healing? Well, it depends on the context of, of what people mean by healing. Education is a key to self-sufficiency. It doesn't mean you're, you're going to deal with the intergenerational traumas. Dealing with intergenerational trauma is very painful. Many people don't want to feel pain, but when you do, that's the only way to heal, is to go through the pain, work through the pain, cry through the pain, be with it. Then when you can come on the other side of it, then that's healing. So education doesn't equal healing and vice versa. But if you are educated and you do choose to heal those traumas, watch out for that person. In addition to that, education can be viewed as a tool. It could help. It's not the answer because I've experienced where I, uh, where I had, uh, where with my, with the qualifications that I acquired, they challenged me this morning. They won't accept that. So it's very selective. If you have the education, it's very selective. But it never, it never deterred me to give up. I think for, for us, we always say, don't give up. That's what that's. And for me, I'm able to understand where my fellow average uh, Canadian, where, where their views are, then I can say, okay, that's where, that's where, that's where they're heading. And for me, I maintain my traditional uh, roots, the knowledge, the, the, the values, beliefs, and I can work with them. So I, I sympathize that person that's very, I guess he's had a very linear mentality. They say, oh, okay, that's where it comes. So I, 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 I can, uh, what you would say, I, I'm able to dichotomize where it comes from, I suppose, and I, I have to work with them. So it's, 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 uh, it's I guess it's called, it's always, uh, it's always a challenge, even though you may have to, Academia, it's only a, a, a tool. And again, under the, the word, the reception, sometimes they don't acknowledge that. For whatever reason, I don't know, again, that's a systemic discrimination kicks in. And that's what I, that's what I believe. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Have you been contacted by the Alberta government in regards to the, K, the new K-6 school curriculum that may be implemented? And if not, what would you be telling them? I have not. I, I was on a committee on, I'm a, I'm a bona fide social studies teacher. And I was on this committee, on an, an ad hoc committee. We were given, and then as soon as uh, we were, we were, we were, we were quashed. And I have not been in contact with them. Either the the NDP government that came that took over, and then the new CP. Now, none of us have been contacted. I've, I've written letters. I've, I have wrote written letters to the both premiers, the the current one and the pre the uh, Rachel Notley about the. I was disappointed that, but the, so we have not. We have been. And again, this is this is a true example of tokenism. They pick and choose who they can, I guess in my idea, that they can colonize, and I also add out they can they can domesticate. So that's my opinion. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Would you like? Would you would you care to comment on that, Terry Lynn? Please. Well, I think uh, governments tend to, uh, they have a gift of confusing mm -hmm. Canadian people. So are we this or are we this? If we're this, this is how much money it's going to cost. But wait, hold on. 
maybe we'll just create a little bit of chaos to confuse everyone. Then we don't have to deal with it. Then we go on, right? So I, that's all I have to say. It, it's a sad reality, but it's not um, the, these individuals are voted in. So then who's behind the people voting them in? We really have to stir up everyone's psyche, mindset, to, to then question and say, wait a minute, if we're moving towards truth and reconciliation together as Canadians, then we need to do better. Hmm. We need to do better. Absolutely. Um, when, when, um, what is the, the, what are some of the biggest issues facing the 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 holding the 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 lack of movement in reconciliation in in for the for for you as you see it i i think um maybe personal but also just a professional perspective personal is um many people in all um, societies across the world, you it's very hard for them to, to sit with pain and trauma. We have been colonized to not think, to not feel, but to do as I say, right? So, so we begin to think that that's, that's how we're supposed to be. It's very disconnected, very... Um, it, it's it's not natural. So if we look at it in that context, for me, reconciliation is painful, but it's not just Indigenous people. Canadian government has done an injustice to everyone by by writing textbooks and and you know uh, media that is not factual. It's only one sided. There is a history before 1867. What is that? What is that history? It's a beautiful history. It's an ancient history, but everyone should should hear about it, read about it, even watch movies about it, because that's a part of who they are now as Euro Canadians. So, from a professional perspective, academic perspective. When governments don't put a, a price tag to what we're asking, then I can see that as reconciliation. Because overcoming these, these traumas, there should be no price tag. But when we're working with this economy and then people's lives and, and those who are murdered and missing and and abused you know sexually physically verbally spiritually how how can you ever put a price tag on it as the survivors have shared there's no price tag you just have to let it happen let let it happen let us you know lead the way and and you're going to cover the cost right if that's too easy, well, I'm, I'm, you know, thinking quite simply and frankly. But that's where I can see from a personal and professional academic perspective of how we can move forward. I guess in addition to that, there has to be a, a genuine interest from society that we actually want to uh, do something to, to improve. And again, we are acknowledging our value that was bestowed, but we grew up with that. And that was respect, even though there's some, they also have to acknowledge of who we are, our identity. We've always been here. We're not homesteaders. We're not immigrants. This is who we are. And again, to verify that we have Nimastical, it's been with us all these years. So the acknowledgement has to, there has to be an interest. There has to be an, it, it has to come from the, uh, the, uh, the Irish Canadian to do, if they want to be able to work with us. And we're, we're there to work with them. That's just one of the ways you could begin to acknowledge who we are. <laughs> Thank you. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Language is a huge part of anyone's culture. Is it alive and well in the Kainai Nation, in the Kainai Nation? 
Well, the language is That's a word we say. That's our language. And we call our speech, we call it it's the true speaking people or the original people language. mean true and the people. So the language that was the first thing they uh, they uh, they uh, they attacked again on the residential school. The other thing too is is our identity. I've, there's some articles from the uh, from the RCAP where they brought where the kid where the children were brought into school and they cut their hair off and they told this young man that they said, "Okay, you're no longer an Indian," and and because we have a connection of our appearance, our hair, the young man was just just devastated. Because we have that connection, so the language was the was the uh, was the I guess there's a focal point to for us to become assimilated, and that's they really really worked hard on it. But we didn't lose it; we just misplaced it. We're just re rejuvenating the language, which is good. That we haven't lost our spirit; we're still here. We're not going to a place; we're going to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> I also think with the um, the continue on continuing um, with kindergarten through to grade twelve on reserve, um, we we see language revival slowly, um, but steady. And I think um, those who are entering um, part of our sacred societies and um, those who are being raised by grandparents you will see that, that the Blackfoot language will slowly increase. I don't know how, how the percentage, but I know that there's there's the want from many, many young people to continue on. So I think it'll you'll you'll see the language um, being used more often in the coming generations. And the last question is from Knuda Peterson. Divide and conquer has long been a tactic of colonizers. Do you feel that this is still the case? Well, it depends who's asking the question or who's responding and, and in what context. Um, you can try and divide and conquer, but we're still here. Our spirits know. Our spirits know. And, and um, I think um, that's just a tactic of colonization. That's a tactic of a, a, a negative energy that, that is not natural to humans. So um, because we're talking about it, we're aware of it. So that says a lot about um, how we're going to move forward. And people can say it, but the reality is I think most Canadians want reconciliation. It's just about how, who do we go to, how do we do it, and, and let's get started. Okay. Um, that was it for the questions. I want to thank you both for sharing, for your time, for sharing your knowledge and your experiences. Um, before we end the live stream, could you give our viewers a take-home message, please? Okay, I'm going to read a quote. I'm, I'm famous for reading quotes, okay? This is from Richard Wagamese. All my relations means all. When a speaker makes this statement, it's meant as recognition of the principles of harmony, unity, and equality. It's a way of saying of saying that you recognize your place in the universe and that you recognize the place of others and of all other things in the realm of the real and the living. And in that, it is a powerful evocation of truth. Mm. People say these words as an act of ceremony and here in this majestic light of morning, you feel that ritual glow within you like an ember from a fire all things connected, all things related, all things grown equally out of one single act of creation that spawned us. This is what you feel and this is what you mean. You come to realize too that if we could all glean 
the power of this one short statement, we could change the world. We could evoke brotherhood and sisterhood. We could remind ourselves that each other, that we need each other, that there is not a single life that is not important to the whole or a single thing that is not worth protecting and honoring all my relations. Just in addition to that, this comment that uh, from, from myself is just to, 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 first of all, thank you for taking the time for us to allow us to be a part of this, uh, this presentation. And also want to encourage that those who are, who are listening is that uh, to take the time to realize that we are human beings, we're not savages. We've always been here. We're here with, uh, with uh, we follow the traditions of our teachings. And when you see the sun rising in the in the east eastern horizon, the teachings that we we share with him is to be the the rays of the sun is to be able to treat everybody alike. And then you have days like the the, the rain, the snowstorm, but that doesn't stop us from going to make your journey to the other side of the, on the west side for your, so those are the teaching for, and again, in, to, to, in a nutshell, I just want to say, don't give up. We want, we, want, we want to have a good life. Everybody is, everybody wants to have a good life, and that's what we're trying to do. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to allow us to be a part of this process. Thank you. I'm neutral. Thank you so much. Um, and for um, everybody who's tuning in today, join us on Thursday for an educator's perspective of Alberta's proposed draft curriculum with Ken Rogers and Kelly Freewin. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.